Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. Today's reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we endangered every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humbly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it, as it as is right and do not go in sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. My name is Brant. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church in Kitsilano, and it's my joy to bring you the Word of God this morning for the text that Unithin just read so well for us. Thank you, Unithin. Um, but before we jump in, it's so appropriate that we turn again to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help and that His Holy Spirit would, would bring this text to life and shape our lives and change our lives by it. So if you'd pray with me as we begin, that'd be great. God, we come to you and we come in the confidence of um, beloved children before their father. Because we know that in Christ Jesus, that's what we are, beloved children. Uh, those that are, are, are loved and, and cared for by you. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through these words. Lord, that where we have sin that needs to be repented of, Lord, that we would be eager to turn away from it and to come to Jesus and know that the forgiveness and the love that he offers. Lord, where we need to be encouraged to remember that, that you are a God who saves by grace through faith as a gift, uh, that we be encouraged in that as well. Um, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us. You cause us to become more faithful, more like Jesus as a result of this passage. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the older I get, the more interested I am in what it takes to live life well. Maybe that's because I've gotten past those early years and the first kind of experiences of adulthood. And now I'm wondering, okay, that's great. But how do I, how do, I do this thing called life in a good way? How do I actually live in a way that's going to last and be meaningful? And uh, my interest in living life well has caused me to become a fan of a genre of literature I used to not like. Uh, biographies. I used to not be into biographies. But now as I get older, I'm into biographies. 
because I want to see what's going on with people's lives, what it took to to cause them to to have the successes that they had, and, and what mistakes they made that led to the failures that they made, and and how can I learn from those things and and actually grow and have uh, a life that's worth living myself. But the more stories that I read, the more story, uh, the more one story overall stands at the fore and stands at the forefront. No surprise, it's the story of Jesus Christ. It's the story of, of his life, of who he was. And of course, uh, all on its own, the story of Jesus' life is compelling. What a compelling life of sacrifice and of, of resurrection and, and of wisdom and, and shrewdness and just truth and righteousness and justice. It's so compelling. But it's compelling as well because the story of Jesus and his life it's continued to move on in this world and shape the lives of so many other people. In fact, a lot of the biographies that I like to read are stories about people who've been shaped by the life of Jesus. They've been changed by him to live differently in this world. Lives, for example, just like the life of Paul that we've been reading about already in this letter. A man who used to be a persecutor of the church of God, but then met Jesus Christ and was changed in this radical way to, to live in a remarkable way for Jesus. Lies like the, the stories of the people in the letter to the Corinthians that he was writing to, who used to be enslaved in, in their sin, but now Christ was at work in them and changing them, and they are now becoming different. And, and Paul's talked about that in the letter that we've been reading. Lives like ours today. Changed still by the life of that most compelling life of all, Jesus Christ. And this morning, as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 33 to 34, Paul's going to show us that actually it's only by living consistently with the reality of Jesus' resurrection that we will live the good life that we're talking about. It's only lives that are shaped by the reality consistent with who Jesus is as a resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Only that can shape our lives to bring about this true, deep, meaningful, well-lived life. We're going to see that in three points this morning. We're going to unpack the text. uh, First, looking at the sacrificial life. Second, the selfish life. And third, the rebuked life. All right, so the sacrificial life, the selfish life, the rebuked life, all looking at, at how this life of Jesus and the power of his resurrection shapes us and changes us and causes us to live well. But first, just a brief word of context. I realize we've been in 1 Corinthians for a long time. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's been a long time in Corinthians. And so just remember where we're at. Paul's been writing a letter to a church in a place called Corinth. They had all kinds of problems going on at that church. And he's been addressing issues as the letter has gone on. And the latest issue in chapter 15 is that they've been denying that there is a resurrection of the dead at all because of the cultural pressure around them that says, that's gross. Rotting corpses raised to life. That's like the walking dead. That's not cool, Paul. We'll just delete that bit of theology from our minds. And Paul says, no, you don't realize what you lose if you delete that. Because if, if the dead aren't raised, that means that Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, that means that, that you won't be raised either when he returns. And if you won't be raised either, that also means that this reign of Jesus in life that brings life to a world of death that's happening presently now through his church and his Holy Spirit living and active amongst us, man, none of that's real. 
You lose everything. The whole thing falls apart. And he's shown us, you know, in fact, you don't have to worry about that because Jesus has been raised. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And if he's been raised, we can be confident that, that all that other stuff that he brings, it's going to happen too. And now in 29 and following, and our first point that we're going to get into, Paul's looking to the Corinthians directly after having argued all this, and he's exasperated with them. And he starts to just put, you know, the, the point right where it needs to be and says, why suffer at all if Jesus has not in fact been raised from the dead? What's the point, Corinthians? And he's like grabbing them by their shoulders and, and shaking them and saying, what's going on? So look at verses 29 to 32a with me and our first point, the sacrificial life, and see what Paul says. Paul says, otherwise, as in otherwise, if Christ isn't raised, what do people mean if he's not raised then by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? And kind of, I think that's the right tone. Like he, he's really leaning in here. He's exasperated with them. And the point he's getting at is this. He realizes that our lives as Christians are true lives. It's true, meaningful, deep life as we follow Jesus. Lives filled with joy and with love, with fulfillment, with meaning. But Paul knows that the tr Christian life and following Jesus is actually a life of sacrifice. Because to live for Jesus is a bunch of things that got to happen. We got to willingly die to ourselves and to this world. And Paul's like, look, apart from the resurrection, all that sacrifice is worthless. Is why would you live the sacrificial life? And he starts to unpack that in these verses that we just read in two different ways. First, talking about baptism and then talking about the sacrifice that he's made in his own life. So just consider baptism first with me in verse 29. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? All right. This sounds like some crazy cult, doesn't it? What on earth is Paul talking about? Well, I want to assure you, it's a lot simpler, I think, than it first appears. I don't think Paul's saying that, that Corinthians were literally going out and being baptized on behalf of people that somehow missed it and died before they could, right? There's, there's, no, there's no Corinthian teenager saying, oh, Uncle Arnold died a moment. That's okay. He didn't get baptized. I'm just going to fill a tub up real quick, you know, and, and I'll just jump in there for Uncle Arnold's sake because uh, he didn't get there in time. That's not what's going on. I don't think that's going on for a few different, I don't think that's what's going on for a few different reasons. First, it's really inconsistent with what Paul taught everywhere else. Paul is so against any magical practice of just doing a thing to, to somehow get yourself right with God. He's against that everywhere. He's, all his theology is, you're saved by coming to Jesus, trusting him, putting your faith in him and receiving the grace of God. That's it. <laughs> Turn away from your sin, trust in Jesus, you're saved. It's good. You know, there's a whole life to be lived following that, but that's what salvation is. Paul comes down again and again and again on that point all throughout his writing. So I don't think he can talk about baptism as some magical practice that you can do for somebody else. It's not, that's not consistent. The second reason I don't think that's what Paul's talking about is that 
all the ancient commentators who, who commentated on this passage closest to when it was written, they all agreed with what I'm saying. They all agreed that, that Paul could not possibly mean that people were out there actually dying or actually being baptized for those that had already died and couldn't get baptized themselves. It just doesn't work. Uh, the grammar of the text also can be read a different way that I think is very important. So what's Paul talking about then? I think Paul's just talking about regular old baptism here. Because, spiritually speaking, isn't baptism always for dead people? Spiritually speaking, baptism is always for dead people. Baptism is for spiritually dead people. The Bible teaches that before Jesus makes us spiritually alive by the power of his resurrection life working through us by the Holy Spirit, he says, apart from that, you are the walking dead. <laughs> you are the walking spiritual dead. Uh, and, and apart from the life of Jesus then working in you, that, that's who you, you are. Paul's talked about that often in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, uh, in Romans 6 and other places. And baptism, as Paul teaches, is just the outward symbol of an inward reality that when we trust in Jesus to save us, our old spiritual selves that are dead, that dead self dies with Jesus. Our, our dead selves are put to death with Jesus so that something else can be raised to life in its place, a new life working within us. That's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, for example. There he says this about baptism. If you guys are going to come to the baptism class, by the way, we're going to talk a lot about this. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when someone chooses to be baptized, what's going on is this. They, as, as formerly spiritually dead people, are choosing to be identified, united with Jesus Christ by faith. So that as they are buried in those waters with Jesus, it's like they're going down into the grave. And that old person, that old dead spiritual person that used to be, dies with Jesus on the cross. So that as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too can be raised with him spiritually speaking. The first fruits that, that we experience of spiritual life, resurrection life from Jesus are, are a spiritual life. All that old sin we used to love, we start to hate, right? That Jesus we used to fight and resist, we love him. We want to follow him. Something's changing in our, our hearts. And baptism is just a symbol of that, that death and that life that takes place as we trust in Jesus. And we're choosing to be identified with it. And Paul's saying then in this argument, if there is no resurrection— that means there's no new life to be had with Jesus right now. No, life, no new life to be had when he returns and be raised physically with him. And it means that, that all that, that being baptized is, is saying you're dying to a way of life that has no benefit. He says you're, you're dying to self with Jesus. He says, but, but there's nothing that's coming out the other side for you. Right? It's, it's just death and self-sacrifice, turning your back on an old way of life with no real life in Jesus. So why do it? Why would you, as a dead person, be baptized with Jesus if there's no life on the other side? And second, Paul says, 
Not only is baptism kind of useless if there's no real resurrection, he's saying sacrifice in general is useless. As Paul says further and very personally, if Jesus is not raised, why did I suffer so much to serve him in the first place? <laughs> why do I go through this? Look at verses 30 to 32. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour if Jesus is not raised? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? See, Paul suffered a lot for his faith in Jesus. He suffered a lot to, to, to live for this new master and to be part of this work of this kingdom of God, sharing the good news of the gospel that other people might, might live. In fact, he suffered so much, he wrote a list to the same church in a different letter in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 28 of some of that suffering because it was just so immense and so significant, all that Paul did. I'm going to read it for you. Paul says this, five times for Jesus' sake, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Man, once is enough. Three times, Paul. Traveling in the ancient world sounded pretty rough, eh? A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He cares a lot about the people he shared the gospel with. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? See, if Jesus was not raised from the dead... Paul says, why do I bother? Why do I do what I do if there is no resurrection? The point is that Paul, he really did live a remarkable life of sacrifice for others. And the only explanation, the only adequate explanation for why he did it was because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Moreover, Paul, this is significant, he's confident that Jesus' resurrection was actually at work through his suffering, bringing life to others. He's like, this matters and it's making a difference. My sacrifice is doing something, all because of the power of Jesus' resurrection at work through my suffering. You can see that in verse 31. As Paul says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. Very interesting. Note that which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. What is he protesting? He's protesting this life of sacrifice that he's living. He says, it's worth it. I'm swearing that it's worth it by my pride in you. It's not that common to make O's anymore today. I don't think. I don't hear them often. So we might not really get what Paul's doing here. I do have a friend, uh, though, who likes to joke O's and he likes to do all the Nordic O's, you know, by, by uh, Poseidon's trident and by Odin's beard and by Thor's hammer and things like those. Um, I don't know if you guys do that. Uh, probably not because it's pretty weird. Um, but the point is that, 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 that people make O's uh, to swear by something they consider valuable. 
People make oaths to swear by something they consider very important. And the thing that was valuable enough for Paul to make his suffering worth it was the new life that he witnessed at work in the Corinthians. Do you see that? He's like, I swear by my pride in you, by what I see God doing in you, by the power of his resurrection that is at work through my sacrifice and my suffering. Like I see him doing something, Corinth. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering. I'm laying my life down, but, but there's a life that's at work. And it's incredible to witness. And I'm so confident in it. Paul swears by the Corinthians because he's confident the resurrected Jesus Christ was working through his suffering to bring them life. And Paul's not bitter that he suffered meaninglessly. He's thankful that he could suffer so productively as part of what God was doing to bring life into a world of death. He's just thankful to be part of it. You can see that and you can see his joy in his suffering and, and the way that it brings life and, and how he can swear by what he sees at work in the Corinthians in another text. Because in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 12, Paul says this, again about his suffering, but about what God's doing through it. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Saying we're, we're always suffering with him in his death, laying our lives down in sacrifice. But there's a purpose to it. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. Again, that's the, that the language of suffering for Jesus' sake. So that, here's the purpose, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life's at work through that death in you. You see what he's saying? He's saying, this death of laying my life down as a follower of Jesus, denying myself, that's what I hold on to. That's how I live. But, but it's producing something incredible. Death's at work in me as a follower and a witness for Jesus, but that death is producing life in you. He says in our text in 1531, that sort of sacrifice is a daily one for him. His eye die every day. But Paul's not upset. He's overjoyed to give all that he has so that the life of Jesus can increase in himself and in others. See, it's because of Jesus' resurrection that a life of sacrifice can be deeply meaningful and deeply worth it. Deeply productive in life that is true life. That's a, the sacrificial life. We see that in Paul and he says, without the resurrection, it's not worth it, but don't worry, he's been raised. It is worth it. I see it at work. And he writes though in verse 32, be about a different way of life, not a sacrificial life, but a self-centered life. Look at it with me in our second point. He says, if the dead aren't raised, on the other hand, well, then let us eat and drink because tomorrow we're just going to die. If the dead aren't raised, let's carpe diem every day. Seize the, seize the day, seize the moment, and live for ourselves and find the most satisfaction for me personally that I can in the here and now. You know, there's a 
a Romanian Lutheran priest who um, who died a number of years ago, and his name was Richard Wormbrand. And some of you guys have read his book called Tortured for Christ. Uh, it's a book that I read um, when I was younger, and it made this indelible imprint on my mind to read about the stories that, that Richard in the in the 40s in his home country of Romania was in prison because he was a a minister of Jesus Christ, a priest in the Lutheran church. And by Soviet Russia, as they came in there, he's in prison and he suffered immensely and was tortured for his faith in Jesus. And it wasn't until the 60s that he was released from prison. So over 20 years uh, in prison and, and, and really suffering in this way. Um, but his life is remarkable. And, and what he did after he got out was he began uh, a magazine that my family subscribed to called uh, The Voice of the Martyrs. And it's just really beautiful um, uh, voice of of, of hope and, and explanation. And so we can all be praying for all those who are suffering for Jesus around the world. Um, and this ministry really affected me. And all this to say simply that Richard Wormbrand knew a thing or two about suffering for Jesus. He's someone that made an imprint on my mind in that way. He knew firsthand that only the resurrection of Jesus could empower true, faithful Christian suffering. And to illustrate this point, he was fond of telling the story about a Cistercian monk that he once talked to. And the story goes that when this monk was interviewed and asked if his life would be worth it, if he found out that Jesus had not, in fact, been raised from the dead, the monk answered, yes. Thought about it for a minute and says, no, no, I think my life would have been worth it if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. And he said, quote, yes, it would have been worth it because holiness and silence and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of reward. I still will have used my life well. And at first, it sounds kind of brave, right? But then you realize something's off. And you start to wonder, did this Cistercian monk suffer for Jesus at all? Like truly and, and deeply? I mean, he lived an ascetic life in a beautiful abbey in Italy. A life of contemplation and study, which clearly he pursued and, and he enjoyed. And, and he could say, well, I guess that kind of life, you know, maybe it would be worth it if Jesus wasn't raised. But could Richard Wormbrand, who was imprisoned and tortured for years, say that without the resurrection, his suffering was worth it? And could Paul? And could those who give their lives day by day, dying to themselves to truly live for Jesus and see his life increase in others? I don't think so. And that's Paul's point. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's a more considered, better life for you to live if there is no resurrection, Christ said he. It's the life of the existentialist philosophers who think this life is absurd and has no meaning anyway. So you might as well find as much pleasure thoughtfully and carefully and considered as you can. Smoke lots of cigarettes and drink coffee, coffee and, and your alcohol in the French cafes. You know, it's going to be good. Right? They're like, let's live for the moment. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So, Christ City, can I suggest something to you? If you think that following Jesus would be worth it without the resurrection, maybe you're not following Jesus. Maybe your life as a Christian has a lot more to do with just living for yourself than it has to do with taking up your cross, denying yourselves, and following him. Because that's what Jesus says following him is about. Matthew 16, 25, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
But following the resurrected Jesus Christ, even with suffering, it's not a worse life. It's a better life. It's the best life that you could possibly live now, today. That's the good news. But it's also a better life because there's so much promise that comes with it. The resurrection from the dead and and life eternally with God in a world with no more sin and sorrow and suffering. But to live that life that God in his mercy wants for us, what we need to do is hear Paul's rebuke in the next verses. Look at our last point, the rebuked life in verses 33 to 34. And there Paul says this, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. For the first time in this chapter, Paul really leans in with a rebuke in these verses. When he's leaning in for this rebuke is is just to say that, look, your unrepentant sin, it has no place in the life that you have with Jesus, who is the resurrected Lord and Savior of all. If that's a reality for you, if that's a reality at all that he's been raised, then that sin that you're holding on to, it's got to go. Whether that's the sexual immorality that he rebuked uh, in the Corinthians' lives in chapters 5 and 6 previously, or whether it's just their basic pride and greed and selfishness that he rebuked again and again and again throughout the letter, holding on to that sin and, and just clinging to it in an unrepentant way, that has nothing to do with the life that's in Jesus. And for the first time in the letter, not only does he rebuke their sin in this way, or the first time in this, this chapter, he also rebukes the groups of people that they're spending time with. This is unique. Look at verse 33. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So I think what's going on here is that the, the church in Corinth is like any other church. And even in this church. There's, in a church, you have groups of people that are within it, that, that, are, that are tight and close friends and, and groups within those groups and, and things that happen like that, right? We're one church, but there's different groups hanging out. And Paul knows that, that some of the groups in the church in Corinth were, were groups that kind of encouraged and tolerated one another's sin. He's called them out on that already in uh, chapter 5 and 6, saying like, you're just putting up with, with this sin in a significant way and that's not good. And what Paul's saying, in effect, is if you want to live richly and deeply and meaningfully for the resurrected Christ, then you've got to stop spending your time with people who don't love him and don't serve him. If you're building your community there in that place, and that's who's surrounding you, it's going to be a problem for your Christian life. You're going to be living deeply out of step with the reality of who Jesus is and his resurrection and all that that means. In Christ City, I, I think that there's a word for us here. We need to hear this. And the word for us is that our community matters. Who you spend time with matters. We are social creatures. And, and what that means is that we live together into our rebellion against Jesus. We do that together. We harden our hearts against Jesus together. And we encourage our one another to take those steps, right? On the other hand, we also encourage one another in life together, right? The more we hang out with people that, that love Jesus, 
that want to follow Jesus, that, that love the word of God, who, who encourage and get excited about serving Jesus. When we do that, we do that together and it encourages our faith. The author of the Hebrews says, um, stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Because He's talking about this idea, this community aspect of our faith. So when our community, our friends who mock the Bible, the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of the word of God and slander others and tear one another's down, it's going to influence you. And when you do the opposite and hang out with those that, that love God, love Jesus, serve him, speak the word of God for you, pray for you, encourage you to walk in obedience to him, that's going to influence you as well. Your community matters. Faith begets faith. And unbelief begets more unbelief. So I want to encourage you to this end. Your faith here in this church matters. So when you get together with others, can I encourage you? Listen to what Paul says in, in the letter to the Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking and admonishing one another. I want to encourage you and empower you are Christians full of the Holy Spirit who have the word of God at your fingertips. Speak it, share it. Bless one another with the word of God. Don't just let the, the dead spiritual air that, that's been your accustomed life together have the upper hand. Turn away from that. Then there's another thing for us to heed it here, and, and it's that there is a lie that floats around in the church sometimes that says that we can watch whatever we want to watch, right? So maintain kind of digital company. And we can spend time with whoever what we want, whoever we want to spend time with, and it won't affect us. There's a pride and an arrogance here that is directly against what the Word of God says. But that's wrong. Because all that we put before us, whether that's the company we keep or the things we use to entertain ourselves, they have an effect on us. Just think about King Solomon as an example. King Solomon is the son of David, and he, he was a king who was the richest, most powerful king in the history of Israel. And it started out well with Solomon. Uh, but as he gained in power and influence, it went very badly. And 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 says why. It says that it was because his wives turned him away from following God. What was going on was that in that ancient world, as Solomon gained influence, all these alliances became available with the neighboring nations. And the way you'd make an alliance was by giving someone a wife. And the more that, that Solomon lived in the high society, spending time and letting his life become influenced and shaped by the neighboring world around him, it had effect even on Solomon's life. His life was consumed with sex and high culture and it pulled him away from God. You need to know you are not wiser than Solomon. You are not wiser than Solomon. And if in your arrogance you think what I put in front of me and how I spend my time won't affect my spiritual life, you're deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And God wants you to be holy. God desires your holiness and your sanctification, Christ, because he loves you. Because there's a better way for you to live. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, Paul writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be led away in, into the sin that, that used to consume you. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's God's words to the people of Israel. Look, God wants you to be a witness to your friends and family who aren't followers of Jesus. He wants you to be a witness to them. He wants you to spend time with them to have friends who aren't Christians. But you're going to be a terrible witness if you look nothing like Jesus. You're going to be a terrible witness for Jesus if you aren't holy like Jesus. To be holy, the first step that Paul's getting at in this passage is that your life needs to be built around relationships that encourage you and build you up and cause you to grow in Christ. That's what Paul wants for the Corinthians. That's what he wants for us. But he gets even more pointed because he says very directly, not just be careful about your community, but also repent of your sin. It just very directly speaks to them in verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this, Corinthians, to your shame. I'm wondering... Uh, when the last time was that you walked past somebody on the streets of Vancouver who was bent over nearly double in a drunken or drug-caused stupor. It's just so evident that when you, when you see that, that mix of fentanyl and whatever else is going on in there, that that, that person, they're not living in our reality. Right? It's in a different reality than one that we're experiencing right now. Not reality as it is, the reality that's existing virtually in their minds. Or to switch metaphors, like Paul says, he says, wake up, not just from drunken stupor. When was the last time you had a really powerful dream? Right? And waking up from that dream was disorienting because you're like, oh my goodness, was that real? And you try to come to terms with, with, with real life. The fundamental problem the Corinthians had was that the concrete decisions of their day-to-day lives proved they lived in a dream world of unrepentant sin. Paul says, the world that you're living in isn't reality. You need to wake up, Corinth. It was a world where Jesus had not died on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. It was a world where Jesus had not been raised to new life as the reigning king of kings who was destroying sin and every enemy that was opposed to him. A world where Jesus had not filled them with the Holy Spirit to free them from the power of sin that had enslaved them and was controlling their lives. A world where there was no hope of real, physical, resurrected life with Jesus in a world with no more sin, where every enemy was defeated. And Paul says, the world that you're living in, it's not real. So wake up and repent. Do not go on sinning. And to these Corinthians who prided themselves so much in their knowledge and in their wisdom, they love philosophy, they love knowledge, love wisdom, Paul says very directly, and, and I think painfully and pointedly to them, he says, you think you're wise? You think you have knowledge? Your tolerance for unrepentant sin in your life proves that you know nothing. You don't even know God. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, he says, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Oh man, that's a, that's a heavy rebuke, okay? That's sobering. That's sobering. And I think it, it speaks a word to us as well, doesn't it? 
And I think the word that, that Paul would say to us would be very much the same. He would say, I think, Christ City, if you find it easy to keep denying what's written in Scripture so plainly, to conveniently again and again ignore what's on the pages of the Bible, because then you might not be a Christian. That's what Paul's saying here. He says, if you keep turning away from the plain teaching of who Jesus is as a Savior resurrected in life, and you keep persistently living in death, then maybe you don't know him. And yet there's such good news for us because the gospel is that God loves to save dead sinners. He loves to bring us to new life and Jesus praise him. But the way that he does that is by asking us to, to turn from the direction that we're heading and in, in holding on to our sin away from it and towards Jesus to receive his life. Right? It's that simple. It, it's just that simple. It's not that he asks us to be perfect, praise God. <laughs> I'd, be the, I'd be the first person to admit that's not going to work for me. He doesn't ask us for perfection. He asks us for repentance. He says, to receive the grace and the love that I freely offer to every single one of you, you got to be willing to turn your back on what you loved before. Does that mean you're going to get it right every time? But as, as Martin Luther once said, the Christian life is a life of repentance. A life where day by day by day we're willing to turn our backs on that sin that used to define us. A hundred times a day if need be to turn to Jesus Christ again to receive the life that only he can give. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You know, Jesus in John 10, he speaks about the life that he had for his followers. And he says, I came, they might have life and have it to the full. Is a thief, on the other hand, that's in his lies, pulling you into your sin, is he comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. See, what God's calling us to in this passage, even with a strong word of rebuke, is to live a rich and a deep life, a better life, fullness of life in rich relationship with God that's so much better than what we're seeking to fill our lives with today. Can I invite you to to come to Jesus, to receive that life, to be reminded of that life, to turn to him in repentance together with me now? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we want to worship and praise you that you give sinners like us true life. And Lord, we admit freely, we're a mess. I'm a mess. But God, I thank you that, that as we turn our eyes to Jesus, you are for us fully and completely. You want nothing more than for us to just open up our arms and receive the love that you pour out to us through Jesus Christ. Okay, would you give us hearts, would you give us hearts that, that would receive that life and that love? Would you free us from that sin that we're, that we're hanging on to in different parts of our lives and, and, and we're cherishing and we're trying to protect from, from Jesus' authority and, and from submitting to him? Or would you lead us to true repentance from it? God, would you encourage us that this does not mean that we must be without sin in some perfect way that we just can't do by ourselves, but just remind us of the truth of the gospel, that that you want us to repent and receive the life you give in Jesus. 
Lord, we ask this in his name and by his spirit. Amen. Hi, everyone. This is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano. And I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano.